Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and as always, I'm joined by Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Doing really well. A febrile. Excellent. Normocephalic atraumatic. <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> um, all right. In this episode, we're going to talk about fevers and chills. And more specifically, we're going to talk about why we feel cold when we have a fever. Shouldn't you feel hot when you have a fever? Uh, so, Tony, tell me how you came onto this topic in the first place. So, I've um, had a long interest in the dictum uh, culture if spikes, meaning that if your patient has a fever, you're supposed to get a set of blood cultures. When I was an intern through my residency as a solo practicing hospitalist, it's been one of those common contingencies you see given during sign out, right? Just those those letters C I S. I suspect, Hannah, that this still happens at the hospital where you're an intern. Would that be right? Yeah, the culture has not changed. That's right. Uh, totally. This is, I would say, yeah, I would say at, at any point to signing out a whole list, that's got to be somewhere on the list. The, that CIS, right? Yeah. We don't, we don't have the acronym, but I like that. Well, it's just, yeah, internal medicine isn't quite ophthalmology, but we do like our acronyms. That's fair. But that's true whether or not the patient has a high likelihood of having bacteremia, right? It's just like if they're they're febrile, get that culture. (laughs) If they're unstable, broaden. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. That's the thing is it'll just like if you look down your list of 10 patients, they all have those same letters. Independent. They could be here for syncope. They could be here for uh, yeah, an infection for sure, but they'll all have CIS. Or if you're at uh, Hannah's Hospital, culture of spikes. Um, <laughs> so we actually looked at this a few years ago. Uh, we did a research study uh, to try to examine whether fever was predictive of positive blood cultures in hospitalized patients. Um, and somewhat surprisingly, fever was not predictive. I thought it might be, but it, it wasn't, at least in this study. What's also interesting is that other studies have found that rigors are actually predictive of bacteremia. Tony, can you remind us like what rigors are and how they differ from a chill? Sure. So uh, chills have generally been defined as the perception of cold and then the involuntary muscle tremor that can come with that. So we've all experienced this. Um, Typically, uh, we'll feel chills uh, when we're exposed to a cold environment. So if you're like in morning report or at a noon conference and the auditorium is a little bit colder than you like, you might feel chills. And you might even start to shiver a little bit. So if my hypothalamus has my internal set point at 98 and I'm in that cold room and my core temperature drops just a little bit, I'm going to have that sensation of feeling cold having chills, and again, maybe even having a little bit of a shiver. And as we'll talk about later, these same experiences um, can occur as a prelude to a fever. Now, shaking chills, which are also known as rigors, these are basically just a more severe form of chills. And I think it's one of those, you know it when you see it, or you know it when you experience it phenomenons. I think one of the three of us recently actually experienced rigors. Uh, I don't know, Avi, if you want to tell us about that. It may or may not have been. You don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't me. (laughs) Yeah, I had uh, I had rigors for the first time in my life after the my second dose of the COVID vaccine, and within maybe twelve hours, I was at home with a fever, and I realized that I was rigoring, and um, I was like, oh. 
this is what gram-negative bacteremia feels like. <laughs> so did, did you get a culture? It did not feel good. I was, but I was not. I was not cultured. <laughs> I defervest. I'm actually a little bit surprised that an intern didn't run into the room. Uh, actually, the intern would have been at the computer writing the order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Demerol the orders. <laughs> um, so if you're interested in a more formal definition, um, one study actually defined rigors or shaking chills as, quote, involuntary shivering such that holding a glass of water in the hand would cause the water to spill out, end quote. So I don't know, Avi, if you tested that when you had rigors. <laughs> That's such a functional definition. <laughs> it's perfect, isn't it? If you did this, you those two next week. I'm I'm doing it. <laughs> well, it's, you can imagine like the 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 research assistant walking into the room trying to recruit a patient, saying, uh, "Sir, can you hold this glass of water for me so I can determine whether or not you can be enrolled in this study?" It feels very Victorian. Uh, yeah. All right. It's so quite the, the, the rigorous definition. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so the data I mentioned earlier um, suggested that fever doesn't predict a, a positive blood culture, but rigors do, right? So this raises a number of questions. And one of those questions is just what's the order of events from bacteremia to fever? For example, like when in there do we feel cold? Uh, and how soon after an uh, episode of bacteremia does the fever occur? So to kind of get the conversation moving, uh, I'll offer a, a few points here. So the first is that bacteremia typically exposes us to exogenous pyrogens, right? So exogenous meaning they're not inherent to us, and pyrogens meaning that they can induce a fever. So you know, a classic example is uh, the LPS found in gram-negative rod cell walls, right? LPS, uh, the lipopolysaccharide, also known as endotoxin. And there's actually experimental data showing that if you inject LPS into humans, it induces fever. Uh, this maybe isn't a surprise, but what's a little bit surprising is that there's a three to five hour delay between the exposure, between the injection, and the peak fever, right? So it takes time to generate a fever. It doesn't happen immediately. Does that bear out with actual bacteremia as opposed to sort of LPS injections? I, I, yes, it does. And so um, this uh, is partly answered by one of my favorite studies. So Harry Weiss and Rubeck Ottenberg, they studied the association between bacteremia and fever in patients who had endocarditis. And these results were published way back in 1932. And they found that there was a delay of many hours, just like the experimental data, between peak bacteremia and the fever. And they concluded their study by writing, quote, the results indicate that if diagnostic blood cultures are made just before the expected rise in temperature, more positive results and higher bacterial counts will be obtained, end quote. So that's totally like we can do this. We just need to order the cultures before the fever, right? I mean, then we can catch. The new sepsis bundle <laughs> yeah. is going to be like ordering the lactate three days before the patient is admitted. Yeah. Yeah. Culture them at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you have to do uh, in turn is... Um, predict when the fever is going to be, right? And if you can do that, then just get the blood cultures before that. And even obviously. though that, yeah, obviously, right? But even though it sounds a little bit ridiculous, we probably can predict it, at least to some extent. Um, and I think to understand why, I think we now got to go into a little bit more of a full review of the physiology of fever and create that full order of events from bacteremia to fever. So again, 
Bacteria enters the bloodstream, and that exposes us to an exogenous pyrogen. And I mentioned that LPS is the classic exogenous pyrogen, but there are other bacterial toxins or the viral hemagglutinin. These are also exogenous pyrogens. There's a ton of them. These exogenous pyrogens induce endogenous pyrogens, and these include the cytokines, right? IL-1, IL-6, and there are others. The endogenous pyrogens will then lead to an increase in prostaglandin E2, which will then act on the hypothalamus to increase the hypothalamic set point. So if the normal hypothalamic set point is around 98, it might increase it to 101. But be, and this is really important. So the body isn't yet at 101. The hypothalamus wants us to be at 101, but we're not there yet. We're at 98. So something has to happen to get us to 101. Okay, so sort of recapping where we are so far, we figured out that actually bacterial counts are probably highest before people actually develop the fevers. And the reason for that is that essentially bacteria comes in, it has exogenous pyrogens or viruses come in with exogenous pyrogen associated. These then induce endogenous pyrogens that then lead to the hypothalamus increasing the set point. And then at that point, once we've sort of turned up the thermostat, is that why we feel cold? Because we've turned up the thermostat, but we're not yet warmed back up to 101? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a good way to interpret it. And there's some data that suggests that the signal to feel cold is actually acting centrally in the brain. And you know, we, you can think about it this way, like we feel cold because we are cold compared to what our body wants us to be. And in some ways, there's really no difference between a set point of 98 and a core temperature of 95 because we're out in a blizzard, and a set point of 101 and a core temperature of 98. Those are both instances where we're three degrees below where our, want, our body wants us to be. So it should come as no surprise that we're f we should feel cold, right? We're below where our body wants us. And so there may be a teleological explanation for this sensation of cold. And it's that if we feel cold, we're going to seek shelter. You know, now it's our home. In the past, maybe it was a cave. And we're going to find a warm blanket. And these are behavioral changes that will help us to retain heat. And they'll help our body to get to that set point that's a higher value. So essentially, we have to be our own furnace, right? And Yeah. And we and it sounds like that's why we sh why we shiver to try to get there. I mean, that's why I was shivering so badly after my vaccine. Is that essentially? Yeah, we have to be our we have to um, have our own insulation, right? So I'm going to put on a coat, right? So I don't lose the heat. And then exactly, we have to um, be a furnace because getting a blanket is not going to be enough, right? Putting on a coat is not going to be enough. We got to do other things. So our body's going to vasoconstrict peripherally. So we're not going to lose as much heat through the skin. And we're also going to generate heat through thermogenesis by doing things like you just said, Avi, like shivering. Um, and eventually these factors are going to raise our temperature resulting in fever. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but I'll mention it uh, briefly now. Um, when you have an episode of bacteremia, if it's a transient one, you typically clear the bacteremia within a few hours, within a couple hours. So if it takes three to five hours to generate a fever, 
and you clear the bloodstream in you know two to three hours, it should come as no surprise that by the time you get a fever, put in the order, phlebotomist comes, the bacteria is gone, right? So so we're like we're we're too late by the time that the fever has hit. Okay, wow. So bacteremia, endo- exogenous pyrogen, endogenous pyrogens get released. This generates like this prostaglandin E2 that increases the hypothalamic set point. And then once the set point is increased, once our thermostat is turned up, you feel cold, you start shivering, and you're doing all of these other things to build heat. But by that time, if it's a transient bacteremia, we will have missed the fever. Right. Well, we've missed the bacteremia. I'm sorry. Yes, we will have missed the bacteremia. Uh, which is why our blood cultures are no growth to date. <laughs> right. And, um, and, for, and for conditions like an endocarditis or an endovascular infection where there's a more persistent bacteremia, you, you know, you're more likely to get a positive. So it's really these transient bacteremias that um, you're probably going to miss it or more, you know, more likely to miss it. Okay. So the other question is why, why do some people rigor and other people just sort of have chills, feel cold? Yeah, so um, so one reason it, you know I probably experienced a couple of nights ago. So I got my second dose of the COVID vaccine, and in anticipation of uh, rigors and fever, I took a ton of NSAIDs. And so what those did, obviously, was they mitigated the production of prostaglandin E two. And so um, you know one reason people don't get rigors um, and uh, maybe just feel a little bit chilly. The set point's gone up a touch, but it hasn't gone up to a point where you're going to need rigors or fever is they take an NSAID, right? That's, we do that in the hospital or another antipyretic like uh, acetaminophen. But another way you might think about it is that we don't always require a rapid onset fever, right? There is a cost to doing this. It, you know, dedicating a lot of energy towards thermogenesis um, you know, means that you can't necessarily dedicate it to other things. But if you've got a high-grade gram-negative rod bacteremia, you might really desire a fever as quickly as possible. And so maybe that's the situation where you're going to see those rigors. And why, why, why do we bother generating a fever at all in the first place? Like, why... <laughs> Like what? Why? Why is this system kind of built into us that in you know bacteremia leads to fever? Right. So let's get back to like the first principles. Like why even bother with all this anyway? Right. So the answer um, is more complex than just well, proteins denature and bacteria don't grow at higher temperatures. That that's undoubtedly a part of it, but there's there's more to it. Um, and I'm actually working on a tutorial on the topic, so I, I don't want to uh, say too much. It may end up being a full episode in the in the future. But what's really fascinating is that fevers have been preserved uh, for hundreds of millions of years in warm blooded and cold blooded creatures. And this suggests that it's doing something, that it's it's been preserved as a function because again, there is a downside to it. It's you know it's it's not without cost. The cost is is energy use. But if we get back to Hannah's question, those more rigorous chills that you see with rigors, they again promote greater thermogenesis. And so you're gonna do that when you really need to get that temperature up in the setting of like the gram negative rod bacteremia. And maybe you don't need that to the same extent in something like a simple urinary tract infection. And we kind of see this, right? I, I mentioned earlier that rigors 
in a number of studies have been shown to be associated with bacteremia. And so I, I wrote a tutorial on this topic, and I actually suggested um, that we change that contingency uh, to culture if shakes. So you can keep the CIS, but instead of culture if spikes, it should be culture if, sh- if shakes. Because th- th- this is the, the thing, right? In that order of events, the, the event that is closer to the bacteremia is the chill and the rigor. And the later event is the fever. The fever is too late. And so the closer you can get a blood culture to the rigor, the higher the probability it's going to be a true positive. Culture before spikes. Yeah. Culture before uh, shakes. <laughs> well, actually, culture well, before would... spikes. Yeah. And if you could if you could predict a rigor, that's even better still. Um, well, I think that brings up a great point, though, because I think you need to respect the rigor, right? I think that's what you're kind of oh, saying because yeah. I, I think the challenge is sometimes is you'll have a rigoring patient who is a febrile right because they're trying to get to the fever they're mm-hmm. not there yet and um you know and, I, and so i think that's also the like the culture is delayed because of that because if you wait for the fever to come like you should draw the culture when they rigor <laughs> that's i mean you i think that's that, that's the perfect point and you look so brilliant on rounds when you when a patient is rigoring and you say, um, you know, in, this patient is going to have a fever in the next one to two hours, and then they do, and you know, the the medical student is like, "How did you do that?" And you say, "Well, you know, I just prostaglandin E two, of course." <laughs> but elementary, but, yeah, just don't let them uh, let them give a patient acetaminophen or an NSAID because then you'll look like a fool. T- Tony, can I propose that you instead <laughs> answer that you are a warlock? I'm, I'm happy to answer see that, but I'm not sure I know what it means. <laughs> oh, is that a? I didn't know that. That's what warlocks could do. That's I think they, they can, can see the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so one question, Tony, that came up for me was like, why? Why don't we get a fever or even or, or a rigor like every time we brush our teeth or that we go to the dentist? Right? Isn't transient bacteremia thought to be commonplace with that? Like. Is that because we clear the bacteria fast enough that there just isn't time for the body to go through this progression of pyrogens and prostaglandins and mount this whole response? Yeah, you know, it's probably that plus um, the, you know, the grade of bacteremia undoubtedly plays a role. And my guess is, um, you know, if you've got really severe periodontal disease, um, you know, maybe the the grade of bacteremia is going to be higher. But my guess is for most uh, bacteremia associated with, you know, dental work. It, it's just not high grade enough, but I don't know that for sure. I haven't looked into this literature in any depth. Okay. So Tony, what are your take homes? All right. So um, we've mentioned this a few times, but repetition is good. Uh, so the order of events is uh, you begin with bacteremia and the exposure of exogenous pyrogens like LPS. Uh, this leads to uh, endogenous pyrogens, basically cytokines which result in uh, an elevation in prostaglandin E2, which acts on the hypothalamus to increase the set point. In order to get the set point to the set point, you feel chilly and you get rigors or just chills. uh, And then finally you get a fever. All right, so that's the order of events. So number two is we may feel cold and feel those chills as a cue to drive behavioral change, like going inside or putting on a sweater, getting under the blankets. Number three is that rigors uh, are a one way to promote rapid heat production when you really need to get that temperature up to the new set point. 
Uh, number four, by the time fever occurs, the bacteremia may have already cleared, particularly for transient low-level bacteremias. And then finally, um, because rigors occur before fever, meaning they're temporally closer to the bacteremia, they are better predictors of positive blood cultures, and it may be more appropriate to say culture if shakes. Are we going to put that out as like an official curious clinician's position? Culture of shakes, Culture yeah. of shakes. <laughs> registered, <laughs> registered trademark. <laughs> Don't forget to change your templates, folks, and your sign-outs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, if, if we begin seeing folks writing conjunctival icterus, uh, then maybe, maybe that we is might... in my template. Yeah, exactly. You know, maybe we'll see culture of shakes, but I, I'm not going to hold my breath. I got to be honest. I'm about to send this this paper to my whole team. I like, you know, it just we so often think these things and and never question why are our blood cultures so often negative. We just take it as a good thing and then sort of move on, or a bad thing and and just move on. But um, this is an incredible way to like rethink what it is that we're actually testing for. That's it. So thank you. Happy to hear that. Awesome. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.